Welcome to The Word at First Pres, the official podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the fall, we're going to be working through a series called God in Science. Each week, we're going to be exploring the various ways that God has revealed to us through the study and field of science. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, beginning in the 8th chapter, verses 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying on your own behalf? Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, because I know where I have come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is valid. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is valid. I testify on my own behalf. And the Father who sent me testifies on my behalf. Then they said to him, Where is your Father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while he was teaching in the treasury of the temple. But no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from 1 John. It's similar authorship to what you heard from John's gospel. And it starts like this. It says, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to thank you all, the few and the proud, who got out here and made it all the way through the snow. Thank you for coming and being a part of this today. I want to start this morning uh, by showing you a video. This is a video from a man named Alan Watts. Now, Alan Watts was a philosopher over in England, but he specialized in Eastern philosophy. He actually brought Eastern philosophy over to Britain. And you can go online and and listen to the things that he has to say. Uh, He has all kinds of different talks, but this particular talk is his idea of life as being like music. So I want you to watch, you can see the words, and you can follow along on the screen. Existence, the physical universe, is best understood by analogy with music. In music, one doesn't make the end of a composition the point of the composition. If that were so, the best conductors would be those who played fastest 
and there would be composers who wrote only finales. People go to concert just to hear one crashing chord, because that's the end. <laughs> Same way in dancing. You don't aim at a particular spot in the room. That's where you should arrive. The whole point of the dancing is the dance. But we don't see that as uh, something brought by our education into our everyday conduct. We've got a system of schooling which gives a completely different impression. It's all graded. And what we do is we put the child into the corridor of this grade system with a kind of, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And yeah, you go to kindergarten, you know. And that's a great thing because when you finish that, you'll get into first grade. And then, come on, first grade leads to second grade and so on. And then you get out of grade school and you go to high school. And it's revving up. The thing is coming. Then you're going to go to college. And by Joe, then you get into graduate school. And when you're through with graduate school, you go out to join the world. And then you get into some racket where you're selling insurance. And they've got that quota to make. And you're going to make that. And all the time, the thing is coming. It's coming. It's coming. That great thing, the, the success you're working for. Then when you wake up one day about 40 years old, you say, my God, I've arrived. <laughs> I'm there. And you don't feel very different from what you always felt. And there's a slight letdown because you feel there's a hoax. And there was a hoax, a dreadful hoax. They made you miss everything by expectation. Look at the people who live to retire and put those savings away. And then when they're 65, they don't have any energy left. They go and rot in an old people's senior citizens community. <laughs> because we've simply cheated ourselves the whole way down the line. We thought of life by analogy with a journey, with a pilgrimage, which had a serious purpose at the end. And the thing was to get to that end, success or whatever it is, or maybe heaven after you're dead. But we missed the point the whole way along. It was a musical thing and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played. But you had to do that thing. You didn't let it happen. All right, we're going to come back to that a little bit later on. You all know we have two sermons left in this sermon series on God and science this week and next week. And each week we've been looking at the various ways that we see God revealed to us through the field and study of science. During this time of Advent, we are in preparation, awaiting Jesus' arrival in our midst. And so we're doing a little bit of a shift in terms of our sermon series. We're still looking at God through the lens of science, except we are now going to be taking on the perspective of trying to understand how the Bible talks about God coming into our world, in particular about how the Bible speaks of Jesus allowing God to come into our world. So today's sermon is called The Science of Unity, and I want to begin this morning by telling you a story. The story takes place on January 31st, 1971, and it has to do with the Apollo 14 space rocket that was taking off from the Kennedy Center Space Complex in Florida. Apollo 14 was to be the third flight from the United States that was going to land on the moon. Aboard this particular spacecraft were three astronauts. There was Edgar Mitchell. He's the one all the way to your left. In the center is Alan Shepard, and to the right was Stuart Russo. 
These three men, they were going to the moon and they had a few objectives. A, they wanted to land. That was very important to actually get there. B, they had to perform a number of experiments. And then C, they were going to take home about 90 pounds of space rocks. Unlike Apollo 13, which we all know because of Tom Hanks, they actually did make it to the moon and they completed 100% of their objectives. Now, they get finished, they rise up from the moon, they're going home, and the spacecraft is turning in this slow rotation. It's what astronauts refer to as barbecue mode because they are allowing the spacecraft to turn so not one side gets too roasted by the sun because all that radiation is coming at it. Now, these three guys, they're all done with their experiments, and they can actually sit back, relax, and just kind of enjoy the ride home. And every hour or so, what happens is the window comes around to reveal this beautiful panorama where they can see the earth, the moon, the stars, the sun. It all kind of just becomes this large panorama out there they can see, and apparently it was striking. And so the three men, they watched this for a period of time. But eventually, Alan Shepard and Stuart Rusa, they go off and they start engaging in other activities. But Edgar Mitchell, he's transfixed by this sight that he sees outside of his window. And every time he comes to the earth, he can't help but think about what's going on down on the surface of the planet. His brother, at that point in time, was currently doing bombing runs over Vietnam. He was a pilot. And Edgar Mitchell himself, he had been a pilot during the Korean War who had done bombings during that time. And so to him it was very strange because he saw the beauty of the earth and it looked so serene and peaceful. And yet, there was this dissonance in his mind because on the surface of the planet, there was so much violence among human beings. And he didn't quite know what to do with this because he's looking at it and he's like, it doesn't make any sense. Why does this look like such a place of tranquility and yet we go out and we hurt each other all the time? And eventually, this tension in his mind gave way to this amazing thing that happened to him. It was a break, what he calls it. And it was this realization <clears throat> that everything he had ever known to be true in his entire life was totally and completely wrong. You see, up to that point in time, Edgar Mitchell had been an avowed atheist. And he had adopted a wholly scientific view of the world. He had rejected all religion as being archaic and outdated because to him, science just made sense. Right? It made the world understandable and predictable. It was science, of course, that had literally shot him into space, safely got him to the moon, and was now taking him home. But he realized in that moment that there was something very deficient about his way of thinking. Something happened to him that he'd never experienced before. As he was looking out that window, as he was looking at the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, as it would come across his point of view, he realized that these were not separate bodies that were floating out of the middle of space. Indeed, he did not feel like he was an observer of these bodies any longer, but rather he felt connected to them, almost if, as if they were a part of who he was. The way he described it, he said, it was as if my flesh and my bones just disappeared and there was no difference between my body and those celestial bodies. 
The distinctions he had known his entire life, male, female, black, white, rich, poor, American, Korean, all those distinctions literally evaporated before his eyes, and for the first time ever, he experienced life with no distinctions at all. Everything became one. Edgar Mitchell referred to this experience as an ecstasy of unity. I really like that, an ecstasy of unity. In that moment, he abandoned his atheism and realized that the universe was the product of an intelligent design that was more powerful than any religion or scientific principle could ever describe. Now, that's a pretty amazing story, is it not? From Edgar Mitchell? It shows how powerful it can be that if you can get into space, just looking at the universe from that perspective can change you. But you know what happened to him? That happens to a lot of people in space. In fact, it is such a common phenomena among astronauts that it's been given its own name. It's called the overview effect. Now, the overview effect is essentially when you get into space, you can see things from a perspective that you and I could never have even dreamed of when we were on the ground. And every single astronaut who has ever had this experience, and it's almost all of them across the board, has said that this particular experience of being in space, it has transformed their way that they look and think about life. So Edgar Mitchell, he comes down, lands on the Earth, right? And of course, he's now a hero. Astronauts, when they come back, they usually are. And he realizes that if everybody could have this experience, it would change the world because he feels he's stumbled upon the purpose and the meaning of life. He believes that if you could have that same experience, that it would get rid of all violence, all war, all poverty, there would be no more unnecessary suffering on the earth. And so he made a decision the moment that he stepped onto the ground that he was going to dedicate the rest of his life to telling people about this experience. So he goes around, and he's giving these speeches, and he has these beautiful photos of what he saw up in space, and he's telling people about it, and people are inspired. And some people even believe, they think to themselves, you know what, if we could all just get into space, it would get rid of all of our societal problems. Because we come to realize how trivial many of the things that we fight about here on Earth actually are. But for every person who was inspired by Edgar Mitchell's new view of the world, many people simply didn't want to listen to what he had to say. Which is kind of understandable, right? Because what he's experienced is something that only a handful of people can understand. Anybody in here been to space before? No, right? It's not a very common thing. I mean, it sounds like a wonderful thing, doesn't it? Would we agree with that? Like, I would love to experience that. I would love to know what it's like to feel as though you were connected to the planets and everything out there, to feel all those divisions melt away. But the best we can do is sit here and look at some photos and hear about his experience and imagine what it would be like. Or is that really the best that we can do? You know, the first time I heard about Edgar Mitchell's story, I have to tell you that I thought to myself, that sounds a whole lot like what Jesus is trying to impart to his disciples. And so I want to turn to our scriptures for today from the Gospel of John and from John's letter because I actually think that these two scriptures, they're trying to help us get at this idea of what Edgar Mitchell experienced in space so that we can have our own version of the overview effect. Now, we began with John's Gospel. 
When Judy was reading the gospel, were you following along with that? Did it make a lot of sense to you what was being said in that gospel? It's okay if you didn't, because it's pretty confusing, most of the stuff that John says. If you've ever taken the time to actually read John's gospel, you will realize it is very different from the other three. It follows a totally different narrative. It's very hard to follow along. It seems like Jesus is a completely different person. He talks in these weird phrases. It's almost like he speaks in poetry. It's hard to make heads or tails of exactly what it is that he's saying. It's all shrouded in mystery. In the other three Gospels, you can generally follow along until he gets to the parables. But John's Gospel, it just feels like one big parable. The whole thing is very confusing. But the beauty of John's Gospel, if you actually sit back to read it, is he's trying to help us understand the connection between Jesus and God. That's very important to the author of John's Gospel. So in that Gospel, Jesus makes this claim. He says, I am the light of the world, and all who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will find the light of life. Now, you all know what that means, right? No, it's okay if you don't. Because it's confusing. So I want to ask a question. What is the light of life? What is that, the light of life? That's a strange little thing, isn't it? Well, if you look at John's other letter, which is just as confusing, you come away and you see that the light of life, it says God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So clearly the light of life is referring to God. So what Jesus is trying to say is that if you follow him, then you're going to find your way to God. If you know Jesus, then you know God. Are you with me on this? Are you following me? Are you awake? Are you alive? Give me something. Okay. Okay. If you follow Jesus, if you know Jesus, you know God. Sounds pretty simple, right? How many of you in here can claim that you know Jesus? Like that you know Jesus? I stand up here every week and I talk to you about Jesus, right? Now I think I know Jesus because I stand up here and I tell you about his teachings. I tell you about all the things that he does. I try to live out his example in my life. But do I know Jesus? John doesn't say that if you know Jesus' teachings that you know Jesus. He says, if you know Jesus, you know God. So what's the difference between intellectually knowing what Jesus is saying, his teachings, his examples, his parables, all that stuff, and really knowing Jesus in your soul. And in my opinion, the difference between those two things is found in love. So let's take a look at that letter from John, because that's where it talks about this whole idea of love. Let's read this. So it says, Beloved, it's like, Beloved, right? Like everything is love in this. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. Now I'm going to admit something to you. Whenever I read this, I have a really horrible reaction in my mind. And I think to myself, that sounds like some real hippie garbage if I've ever heard it before. Like, honestly, every time I read it, I feel that way because it's all like, you know, God is love. And if you just love each other, then you'll know God and it's all going to be good, right? Like, if we can just love each other, it'll all be fantastic. That's, that's, a, that's initially how I feel. And here's the reason why. Here's why my cynicism towards this particular verse. Because I think when people hear this idea that God is love, this is what goes to their mind. They think, well, if I've experienced love, then I know God. So whatever your particular experience of love has been, that becomes God. 
So what's the problem with that, right? Well, first of all, everybody in here experiences love in a very different way. And secondly, human love is very different from God's version of love. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So, I hear people say all the time to each other, I love you. Hear it said all the time. But what they say and how they act are two totally different things. You cannot say that you love someone and then treat them horribly. Those two things do not go together. If you love somebody, then you're going to treat them with honor, decency, respect. If you love somebody, you're looking out for their best interests, you never intentionally hurt them, and you want the best for them no matter what. Anything less, that's not God's love. Anything less than that. Now, you may say you love somebody, but if you love at a lower level, and it doesn't have anything to do, like if you love in anything less than an unconditional way, then you can't really claim to know God's love. Are you following me on this? Okay. Now, here's the problem that we're coming to. The problem that we come to is that human love always has conditions. It always has boundaries. The one place where you will hear humans talk about unconditional love is where? It's from a parent to a child, right? They'll say, I love my child unconditionally, right? But, as true as that is for most of the time, there are certain conditions where your children will put you in positions where you may not be able to love them fully in the way that you want to. I mean, we sit there and we say, I love my children unconditionally, right? But there's a reality to it. There are circumstances where your love will find its limits. And I've seen this as a pastor a lot, where a child puts them in that position. Our love generally has boundaries around it. As much as we may not want to believe that, it does. And what I see Jesus is trying to do, Jesus is trying to lead us in a direction to say, look, if you're truly going to love, you need to love without condition in your life. That's what Jesus wants from us. Because if you can experience truly unconditional love, that's when you can understand God. Now, how many of you in here would say, yeah, I know what it means to be loved truly unconditionally? How many of you would say that you know what that means, that you've experienced it? Because it's not something that you experience up here. It's something you experience in your soul. And I think what I see, because, you know, I go back and I read all these ancient Christians who, throughout the centuries, those people who have said that they've experienced God's unconditional love, you know how they describe it? They describe it exactly the way Edgar Mitchell described his experience in space, where everything falls away, there's no distinctions, everything becomes one. So what did Edgar Mitchell say? Do you remember what he said when I was explaining it to you, how there were no more distinctions, that he felt like everything just kind of melted away and he was all blended together with everything? Well, the Christian mystics, these people who had literally spent decades meditating in the desert, they talked about how when they experienced God's love, that that is what they felt. That that's actually what came upon them. That there was no divisions, there was no barriers, there was none of that stuff. Everything became one. But of course, that is the equivalent. What we see is what they're talking about is the equivalent with the overview effect. And so the problem is, is that we have trouble getting to the overview effect in our own lives because we don't have a ticket into space, right? Like we can't actually like get up there into space to do that. And so what Jesus is trying to say is, hey, you can achieve the overview effect in your own life. And the way you achieve it is that if you can get in touch 
with God's unconditional love, if you can experience that, then all those divisions in your life, they're going to melt away, and you're going to find your true purpose, meaning, and calling. And so what I want to focus on for the rest of our time together is I want to focus on this idea of how can you achieve the overview effect in your own life? How can you have that happen to you? Because practically, we're not going to space anytime soon. And practically, I know you all aren't going out to the desert to meditate for decades at a time. If you are, let me know. I'm going to be very impressed with that. Most of us aren't going to be doing that, right? So we are left with this problem that that's not going to be us. So we need another way to get there. And this is where that video we watched at the beginning becomes very important. So we watched that video with Alan Watts. And you remember, Alan Watts, he's talking about this concept of a journey. And what's fascinating about this is that he's trying to tell us that this notion of a journey is actually really destructive to who we are. Because a journey is all about you go from point A to point B to point C, and what we've convinced ourselves of is that Somewhere along the way, we're going to reach one of those points, and it's going to make everything worthwhile. That if you achieve this goal, it's really going to bring it all together for you, right? But everybody in here, if you've ever achieved a goal, you know that that's not necessarily true. That you get to the goal, and yes, it feels good that you achieve the goal, but it's not this dramatic revolution in your life, right? I mean, it's not like you see the world through a whole new lens. It's not like Edgar Mitchell where it's like, whoa, it just blows away your whole worldview. No, you achieve the goal and you move on. And the problem is that we've convinced ourselves that this is what makes life worthwhile, that we need to achieve the goal. And when it doesn't happen, when we get to that goal and it's like, well, I guess it's come and gone and it'll probably be the next one, and that's the one that's going to make me feel like I'm fulfilled, right? Or the next one, until all of a sudden you're at the end of your life, and you're looking back, and there's no more goals to achieve, and you realize you spent your entire life trying to achieve these goals, and you missed out on everything that mattered. You see, the problem with the Western mindset, with the American mindset, is that we look at life like a story that's unfolding before our eyes. And of course, a story is always moving forward. It's pressing towards a conclusion. But what Alan Watts is saying is that life is much less like a story and much more like a dance. So when you dance to music, and I'm not talking about choreographed dance, I'm just talking about dancing to a rhythm, right? The whole point when you do that is just to enjoy the music. You go out, and you get on the floor, and you just dance. You listen to the music, the music becomes part of you, and you just enjoy that moment. That is what life is supposed to be about. You are not supposed to be achieving a goal to get to an end so that you can have something done. The whole point is to live into that moment, to be present there. Probably once or twice a week, my boys and my wife, We'll get together and we'll dance. We'll literally just dance together. Now, we're not very good at it. We are very white, as you can probably tell. So, but we dance and we have a good time together. And I will tell you that it is in those moments that I actually feel the most connected to my family. We're one with the music, and as a result, we're one with each other. 
And as we're together, I can feel the veil of those distinctions that separate us from one another begin to slip away. And that unconditional love of God, it starts to feel very real in those moments. Now, I'm not saying you need to go home and literally dance, although you can if you want to. What I'm saying is you need to find your way to dance, your way to be in the moment where you're not worried about what comes next. You need to be with those people who matter to you most, and you need to be so present with them that you live into this moment of unity. If you're wondering, what does that feel like? Well, sometimes it feels like what happens in here. There are moments in this place where I feel like we're so connected to each other. Sometimes it happens in the sermon. Sometimes it happens with the music where all those distinctions just melt away. And for a moment, you can feel that unconditional love of God permeate this place. And there's not those divisions between us. That is what we are aiming for. You want to live your life so that every single day you feel those divisions melt away between you and the people who you love and who you care about because that's what makes life worthwhile. So as we think about what's going to happen, right? We just lit these candles. Jesus is coming to earth, right? And we're going to celebrate his birth. I want you to remember something, and this is so important. Jesus did not come here just to create one more religion, to create more divisions and barriers between people. Jesus came here to get rid of those barriers. Jesus came here so that we might experience an ecstasy of unity with God's unconditional love. That's what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to experience that in our lives. And so as we depart from each other this morning, I want you to listen to the words of Alan Watts one more time. Because my hope is that you will see life not as a journey where you're trying to reach your destination, but rather as a dance to be enjoyed here in the moment with the people who you love. Amen. Existence, the physical universe, is best understood by analogy with music. In music, one doesn't make the end of a composition the point of the composition. If that were so, the best conductors would be those who played fastest. And there would be composers who wrote only finales. People go to a concert just to hear one crashing chord, because that's the end. <laughs> Same way in dancing. You don't aim at a particular spot in the room. That's where you should arrive. The whole point of the dancing is the dance. Now, but we don't see that as uh, something brought by our education into our everyday conduct. We've got a system of schooling which gives a completely different impression. It's all graded. And what we do is we put the child into the corridor of this grade system with a kind of, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And yeah, you go to kindergarten, you know. And that's a great thing because when you finish that, you'll get into first grade. And then come on, first grade leads to second grade and so on. And then you get out of grade school, you've got high school and it's revving up. The thing is coming. Then you're going to go to college. And by Jove, then you get into graduate school. And when you're through with graduate school, you go out to join the world. And then you get into some racket where you're selling insurance. 
and they've got that quota to make and you're going to make that and all the time the thing is coming it's coming it's coming that great thing the, the success you're working for then when you wake up one day about 40 years old you say my god i've arrived <laughs> i'm there and you don't feel very different from what you always felt and there's a slight letdown because you feel there's a hoax and there was a hoax a dreadful hoax they made you miss everything by expectation look at the people who live to retire and put those savings away and then when they're 65 they don't have any energy left they're more or less impotent and uh, they go and rot in an old people's senior citizens community <laughs> because we simply cheated ourselves the whole way down the line we thought of life by analogy with a journey with a pilgrimage which had a serious purpose at the end and the thing was to get to that end success or whatever it is or maybe heaven after you're dead but we missed the point the whole way along it was a musical thing and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played but you had to do that thing you didn't let it happen Thanks for listening, and if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.